Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the A Geeks podcast. I am Sergeant McConnell, and tonight I am joined by Sergeant Anderson. Hello, everyone. And Sergeant Paul. How's it going? For this week's episode, we have each researched a type of aircraft, which we found interesting. Paul will be discussing the SR-71 Blackbird. I will be talking about the A-10 Thunderbolt II, and Anderson will be talking about the B-7 Flying Fortress. First, we have Sergeant Paul. Take it away. Thank you, Sergeant McConnell. And so, I will be talking about the SR-71 Blackbird, as was just mentioned. And so, in the early days of the Cold War, the U.S. had a pretty big problem on their hands. They had no clue about Soviet military strength. For example, how many nukes they had, where they stored them, other military assets, nothing. However, meanwhile, the Soviets were pretty good spies. So good, in fact, that whenever the U.S. would try to send spies into the Soviet Union, they would often have soldiers waiting to arrest them as soon as they got in. And so, the U.S. tried to solve the problem if the only field where they were superior to the Soviets' technology. And so, with the help of famed plane designer Kelly Johnson, they created the U-2 spy plane in 1957, which was the biggest piece of garbage that still somehow worked I've personally ever seen. seen. That, is, it that was, is the best description of a plane I have ever heard. <laughs> biggest piece of garbage <laughs> that somehow worked. Right? That, that perfectly describes this. Especially the U-2. Right? It was slow. It, you, it couldn't make a big turn without tearing the wings off. In, it, it had no armament. Its only advantage was the fact that it could fly at 85,000 feet. Though in fairness, it was built for reconnaissance, wasn't it? If I'm not that mistaken. That is true. It was a spy plane. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, is it, it is really job, a drawback yeah. that, yeah, like it's not really a big drawback that uh, it can't really turn uh, too well and it can't go fast because uh, the main point of it is to fly in a straight line taking pictures. But yeah, well, if I mean, this thing ever thing... got, right. sorry, but. <laughs> Like, if this thing ever got jumped by enemy fighters, yeah, I'd be completely screwed. Right. However, however, that was all those drawbacks weren't the only thing. The thing that really doomed the U 2 was the fact that the US thought, they thought that the U 2 would be able to fly above the Soviet radar ceiling. Uh, they were wrong. The U 2 was detected the very first time they sent it into the Soviet Union. And it was only a matter of time until it got shot down. Three years later, in 1960, it was shot down. <laughs> and so this, it was shot down near Yekaterinburg, Russia, which I am certain I mispronounced. And this incident was used as proof of American aggression by the Soviets. So that sucked. But luckily... DARPA already had Kelly Johnson working on a new spy plane before the 1960 incident. The general idea was, well, if we can't outclimb their air defenses, let's just go faster than their missiles. What could go wrong? And the SR-71 was born. Now, of course, it was much more complicated than um, that. There were a million well, I, different I'd engineering like ask, challenges. I'd like to ask one quick question. I've always thought the SR-71 was designed to be like a, a fighter or a bomber. Are you saying it was actually designed as like a reconnaissance aircraft or like a replacement for the U-2? It, actually, I should, men, I should mention here that the SR-71 had two variants. The SR-71 was the only thing that was actually ever, ever sent into the field. However, they also did have a, 
almost an interceptor variant called the A12, which was a bit faster, but it never left prototyping, so it was never truly introduced. Because how many different variants were there of the SR-71? Uh, I think there was three. There was the A-12, the SR-71, and one more that I can't remember. Okay. All right, yeah. thank you. And no problemo. And so, and so, like I was saying, it was, of course, way more complicated than what I just said. There were a million different engineering challenges that they would have to get through to make this thing fly. First were the engines that they would have to use to get it to fly at Mach 3.5. That was the biggest challenge. And there's also the problem where the heat generated from flying so fast would melt normal aircraft aluminum. So they had to use titanium to make the thing, which was very expensive. And also, fun fact, the titanium they made the SR-71 with was actually bought from the Soviet Union through various proxy companies. But seriously? Yeah, no, the Americans, they actually bought titanium for the SR-71 with Soviet metal. So the Soviets essentially funded, or they gave the materials for their enemy's plane to spy on them and to attack them, essentially. Yep. Oh, I wonder what could go wrong with that idea. Yeah, well, think, yeah, well the U.S. managed to do this by doing it through a number of foreign pro proxy companies. Still, you, you would have thought that the Soviet military or like the KGB or the Kremlin, they could have tracked down these proxy companies and they could have, you know, sort of like pieced it all together back to the U.S. You would have thought they would have been able you to would, figure that out. You would think. And yet it somehow didn't happen. I'm, I'm astonished at that, that they bought the titanium for this aircraft from their enemy. That is right. That is like strain into wild. That's absolutely hilarious territory. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, it was ninety percent of it was made out of titanium, Soviet titanium, and they also had to reduce its radar cross section by ninety percent, which would make the SR seventy one look quote larger than a mouse but smaller than a man. So it was basically invisible to radar. It was also reportedly a real pain to fly, like B-2 bomber levels hard to fly. However... Really? So, yeah, like, I've always seen it as being very small. I, I thought it would have been very maneuverable. Actually, I, I thought, like, that was the whole point of it. Like, it was meant to be maneuverable. Or was it, like, just meant to be fast? Like, it was meant straight just, line as fast as you can. It was meant to fly. It was meant to be stealthy and fly high and fast. That was it. Oh, okay. Right. Which, and it, it certainly did its job. Like the SR-71, if you've ever seen these things, like they are huge. Like pretty sure they're like, what, 100 feet long? Really? That That is, that's very big. That's, yeah. um, I got to think how big that is. Um, yeah, like they are huge. Yeah, that is, that is very big. That's, I think about 3.3 uh, meters. 100 meters. Or sorry, no, three, 33 meters. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> 33 meters. Feet, sorry, what am I thinking? Yeah, you're right. 100, that's 100 feet, 33 meters. Yeah. Sorry, I got that confused a bit. But yeah, that is, <laughs> that's absolutely massive. Yeah. So these are, these are not at all what I was expecting. Like I've, I've read a bit of stuff on the SR 71 before. This is not at all what I was expecting. I was expecting like a very fast, very maneuverable interceptor. But like from what I've heard, it sounds like it was designed for something entirely else, like something completely different. Right. 
So as I was saying, it was, like I said, it was a pain in the ass to fly, which would be a problem if the pilots weren't having the time of their life flying it. Quote, at 85,000 feet at Mach 3, it was almost a religious experience. Nothing had prepared me to fly that fast. Even now, I get goosebumps remembering. That was a quote from U.S. Air Force Colonel Jim Watkins in an interview with Lockheed Martin. That sounds awesome. Like he's he's almost an astronaut at that point. You're flying that high, that fast. You're basically you're an close, astronaut. Yeah. You're close to being an astronaut. Like that's as close as you can come to space without being in space. Right. So the SR-71 was first deployed over Vietnam in 1966. And apparently the commander at the radar station that detected it brushed it off, thinking nothing that high could fly that fast. He was very wrong. <laughs> And the SR-71 was completely untouchable for its entire service life, with not a single one being shot down. In See, fact, I've, always, I've always found that kind of funny when um, people always say, oh, there's no way that could be a plane. Like, they, do they never stop to think that maybe it's a new type of plane they've never seen before? Yeah, yeah a lot of UFO sightings were actually SR-71s in the U.S., Fact. So that, that makes sense, though. Like, what a lot of people don't realize is that Area 51 is actually where they test new fighter planes. So, of course, there's going to be UFO sightings around there. They're, some of the planes right. they designed are weird. Like, there was one a while back that looks like a stereotypical UFO. Like, it's um, oh, right, that one ring fighter. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. But sorry, keep going. Thank you. All right. So, like, it, was, it got to the point where the Soviet Union designed aircraft like specifically to get rid of the SR-71, then failed. The Specifically the MiG-25 Foxbat and the MiG-31, both of which essentially being rockets with wings and some weapons. Like the, the MiG-25 literally used ICBM engines. Oh, I've, I've always wondered what those were on the back of the MiG-25. Like those engines looked absolutely massive. Right. I was wondering if someone used Photoshop and I like, put that on the back of a, a real fighter, but those are like actual engines. Those aren't, that's not fake. That's the real M or MiG-25. No, no, actual ICBM engines. You're going to wonder where they come up with ideas like this. Like what guy walked into the room and said, hey, why don't we strap a missile onto the back of our fighter plane? Yeah. Yeah, the MiG-25 was specifically designed to take out planes like inter to planes like, um, what's it called? The U.S. was making plans to get their hands on supersonic bombers. And so the Soviet Union was like, okay, they're about to make supersonic bombers and we got the SR-71 to deal with. Let's just, let's just strap a rocket to a plane and see what happens. So that happened. And so, right, so make 25 years ICBM engines. But however, all good things must come to an end as the SR-71 was retired from the U.S. Air Force in 1990 for two main reasons. The first, they were, they were crazy expensive, costing $33 million back then, which adjusted for inflation is roughly $350 million modern U.S. dollars. And on top of that, they needed, right, they needed regular maintenance and special fuel that jacked up their cost even further. And another reason is that they became obsolete when spy satellites became more prevalent. NASA kept... Oh, sorry, you said let's say something? Sorry, I was going to say, yeah, that's the big problem with um, a lot of aircraft now. They're getting replaced by computers and by spacecraft. Like, really, what's the point? I, I actually am wondering this. The U.S. Air Force still operates the U-2 spy plane 
I don't know what the point of that is when they have satellites now. Right. Like I, I guess the reasoning is it's more accurate. Like you can tell the pilot exactly where you want to go, whereas a satellite, it's a lot harder and a lot more inconvenient to change the orbit. But it's still, it seems a lot more redundant to like fly an aircraft. They know it's there. They can see it on radar and they can easily shoot it down. They decide to fly that over high-risk areas. I don't understand why they keep doing that. Right. Um, NASA also kept two SR-71s until 1997. And after that, the SR-71 would remain grounded. And it still remains the fastest operational military aircraft in history. However, that record might be broken soon. For after following a proposal in 2013, Lockheed Martin has started work on a new plane, the SR-72, which is estimated to be able to reach speeds of Mach 6 and be remoted pi pi remotely piloted. You got my hopes up there when you started talking about the SR-72, and then you shattered them when you said remotely piloted. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to have its first flight in 2023 and enter service by 2030 with the U.S. military. Well, that sounds awesome. Right? Mm. I've got a right, drone well, going Mach 6. That would like. be very awesome to see. All right. Well, thank you, Sergeant Paul, for telling us about the SR-71 Blackbird. So next, we have Sergeant McConnell, who is going to be talking about the A-10 Thunderbolt 2. So go ahead, Sergeant McConnell. Thank you, Sergeant Anderson. So the Fairchild Republic A-10 Thunderbolt 2 more commonly referred to as the Warthog, is probably one of the most infamous planes in the entire U.S. military. The easily recognizable sound of its main gun has served as a source of terror to America's enemies and has helped cement its status as an aviation legend. The A-10 was designed in the mid-1970s to provide close air support to ground troops by attacking armored vehicles, tanks, and any other enemy ground forces. It is a single-seat aircraft that was intended to improve the performance and firepower of the Douglas A-1 Sky Raider. First, we need to talk about the specifications of the A-10. It had a length of 53 feet, 4 inches, a wingspan of 57 feet, 6 inches. The maximum takeoff weight was 51,000 pounds. Its top speed was 420 miles per hour. It had a range of 800 miles, and the ceiling was 45,000 feet. Next, we need to discuss the firepower of the A-10. The main offensive weapon of the Warthog is the 30-millimeter Gatling gun, which is capable of firing up to 3,900 rounds per minute, or 65 per second. This insanely high rate of fire is responsible for producing the aircraft's iconic buzzing sound, equally impressive as the type of ammunition used in the gun. The Warthog uses self-sharpening depleted uranium rounds which gave it the ability to penetrate the thick armor of modern tanks. In addition to the main gun, the A-10 has 11 pylons to which a wide range of ordnance can be fixed. The Warthog can carry almost any combination of air-to-ground missiles, guided bombs, unguided rockets, and even air-to-air -air missiles in some configurations. Now let's talk about the protection offered to the pilot of the A-10. It had 1,200 pounds of titanium armor and bulletproof glass in order to protect the cockpit and aircraft systems from small arms fire, making it possible to absorb large amounts of damage and continue flying. 
This is in addition to the electronic countermeasure systems and flares which jam and confuse enemy missiles. On February 10, 1976, Deputy Secretary of Defense Bill Clements authorized a full rate production. The first A-10 was accepted by the Air Force Tactical Air Command on March 30, 1976. Production continued and sped up to become 13 aircraft per month. By 1984, 715 airplanes, including two prototypes and six development aircraft had been delivered. The planned service of life was 6,000 hours, but the A-10 failed the initial fatigue testing. To fix this, a small reinforcement to the design was adopted. After these changes were made, the A-10 passed all of the fatigue tests. But then 8,000 flight hour service lives are starting to become common. So the A-10 continued fatigue test with an 8,000 hour target. Quickly after starting these tests, they realized that there were serious wing cracks at wing station 23. Quickly after, the U.S. Air Force determined that the A-10 fleet was more harsh than expected. This forced them to change the fatigue testing and introduce Spectrum 3. The Spectrum 3 testing started in 1979. The round of testing quickly determined that more drastic reinforcements would be needed. This change was to thicken the lower skin on the outer wing panels. There have been many upgrades to the A-10 since entering service. In 1978, the A-10 received the Pave Penny laser receiver pod. Further upgrades included integrated combat search and rescue locator systems and improved early warning and anti-jam self-protection systems. Force recognized that the A-10 engine power was suboptimal and have been planning to replace them with more powerful engines since at least 2001 at an estimated cost of $2 billion. All right, thank you, Sergeant McConnell, for telling us about the A-10 Warthog. Now, I don't think a lot of people really realize how big the gun on that thing actually is. There are pictures of the Gatlin gun being removed from the aircraft entirely and placed next to a car, and the gun is actually bigger than the car is. So when she said 30 millimeters, that's, that's not talking about the length, everyone. I want to clarify that. That is, not that is not taking into account the length. That's talking about the width. So take any ruler you have, measure out 30 millimeters, that is how wide the round is. Um, and depleted uranium, the reason they use that is because of how dense it is. So when it hits a target, it just slams right through and keeps going. There's practically nothing that can stop the round from an A-10 Warhawk. Also helps that depleted uranium rounds tend to burn really hot. Like, they do. They can melt us that, out any armor, yeah. That actually has caused a lot of controversy though, because there have been a lot of people We've been reporting that there have been uh, larger amounts of cancer in the regions where these depleted uranium rounds have been used. So depleted uranium rounds, yes, they do have a lot of very good advantages. Uh, they're very good at taking out armored units, but their, their safety and their, um, their sort of efficacy have all been called into question. But for right now, the A-10 still does use that type of ammunition. I mean, that was it's not really surprising when you're basically using nuclear waste ammo. Yeah, that's a good point. That is, that's where they get depleted uranium from. It is exactly as it sounds like. They take pretty much nuclear waste or they take depleted uranium cores and they use them to make these bullets. They grind them up and put them in bullets. So it's not exactly the safest practice, um, but it's very effective at taking out enemy armored units. Now, with all that said, 
I will be talking about the B-17 Flying Fortress, which is probably one of the most well-known aircraft in history. Um, so yeah, the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress, it pretty much set the standard for all the US Air Force bombers that came after it. Like you can look at any bomber and you will see traces of the B-17 in that bomber. So first let's talk about the history of the B-17. So in 1935, the United States Army Air Force began trials to find an effective replacement for the Martin B-10 bomber. An interesting thing to note here is that the B-10 had only entered service in 1933, yet just two years later, it was already obsolete. So you can see that aircraft technology was advancing at a very fast rate in the 1930s. It is pretty much unprecedented today for an aircraft to be built and then in less than 10 years, it's already obsolete. This was just two years after the B-10 came into service and it was already obsolete. So during these trials, the US Army Air Force invited representatives from the Boeing Corporation, the Martin Corporation and the Douglas Corporation. So Boeing's entry into this was obviously the B-17. So the B-17 actually got its name during this time uh, it was when they took the plane out of the hangar for the very first time, a reporter looked at it and said, my God, that thing's a flying fortress. Boeing, they saw the massive PR potential that this had and they instantly trademarked the name. Throughout the trials, it soon became apparent that the B-17 was the best aircraft and the competition fell far behind. Despite this, the B-17 actually failed its combat trials. This was because on one of the training flights, the ground crew forgot to remove the control surface locks, which made it so the pilot was unable to control the aircraft and it resulted in a crash shortly after takeoff. So for anyone who doesn't know, when a plane is sitting on the ground, there are special pins that are locked into all the control surfaces. So the rudders, the elevators, uh, the ailerons. And the reason that's done is so that no one can just go and steal the plane. It also prevents damages and it really just make sure the aircraft can't be damaged while it's on the ground. However, if you don't take these out, you cannot move a single control surface while you're flying. So obviously this is what happens here. The ground crews forgot to do it and the pilots had absolutely no way to control the plane once they took off. So it was a really tragic situation. However, this also meant that Boeing was legally required to withdraw from the competition. However, the US Army didn't want to, you, they didn't want to lose this plane. It was an awesome plane. It was completely destroying the competition. So using a loophole, they ordered several hundred for research and development. I want to preface that I am using some massive air quotes right there because they did not care about research and development. They wanted these planes because they were rugged, because they were awesome, and they had a ton of firepower. Well, you could say it was for research against Germans. I mean... You could say that, yeah, it was for research and development against the enemy. There we go. Um, now, so now that we have a bit of insight into the history of the aircraft, actually one thing I do wanna mention that I found kind of interesting was the earliest models of the B-17 didn't actually have a tail gun. So for all of the dozens of machine guns, for the, the final models had about 13 machine guns, yet they didn't have a tail gun on the very first model. I mean, who would ever think of an attacking an airplane from behind though, am I right? Why would anyone do that? Hey, you got a ball gunner, that's good enough. Yeah, I guess so. Right, but from every model on following the D variant of the B-17, they put a tail gun on because they started thinking, 
huh, these things are taking a lot of fire from behind. Who would have thought? Right, so now that we have some insight into the history behind the aircraft, let's talk a little bit about the plane itself. So the aircraft had a crew of 10 men, which consisted of two pilots, a flight engineer, a navigator, a radio operator, a bombardier, and four gunners. Um, so I wanna say right here, if that seems like there's not enough gunners, because this thing had a lot of guns on and there's only four gunners, the reason they did that was pretty much everyone on this plane was also a gunner. So the bombardier and the navigator, they really didn't need to be at their jobs the entire time. And there were a lot of crew members like that. So a lot of times they'd be at a gun and then whenever they needed to go, like whenever they needed to go find a new heading, whenever they needed to go drop the bombs, that person would leave the gun for a few minutes, go do their job and they'd come right back to it. So the um, bombardier and the navigator, the two of them combined operated the four machine guns in the front of the nose and the radio operator uh, operated one of the ones on top and the flight engineer operated two of the other ones on top. The only two crew members who never left their position, no matter what, were the two pilots. And I think that's for fairly obvious reasons. We can all understand why the pilots would never be leaving their seat. Right. Um, yeah, so the B-17 had 13 50 caliber machine guns on it. So more than a dozen machine guns on this plane. That is some serious firepower. And they're it 50 cals, no less. Like that'll punch a hole in just about anything. Yeah, that's a 50 cal. That, that's an absolutely massive gun. If anyone has ever heard one of those fire live, you can like feel it in your chest when that fires. It feels like someone's punching you in the chest. It is a truly amazing gun. And this thing had 13 of them. It is no wonder it was called the Flying Fortress. Now, the maximum payload varied with the several different models of the aircraft. So there were a few that were designed for a longer range. Some that were designed for naval bombing. So depending on what variant it was, it had a different payload, but the payload usually ranged between 4,500 pounds and 17,600 pounds. Now, crucially, it had a range of about 2,000 miles on some variants, which gave it the ability to hit the heart of Germany from bases in England. That was the main goal of this bomber, to fly long distances and strike deep into enemy territory. Now, over its service life, over 12,000 B-17s were built and they flew hundreds of missions throughout the course of the war. It has been estimated that over 640,000 tons, the total 1.5 million tons, approximately 42% of bombs dropped on Nazi Germany by the US military were carried by B-17s. Now, despite the aircraft's incredible level of protection, over 4,500 were lost during the war. In fact, it was considered rare and a special occasion when a B-17 completed its tour of duty, which was 25 missions. Now, the first flying fortress to complete its tour of duty was the Memphis Bell, and they did this in early 1943. So halfway through the war, it was the first time one of these planes was actually able to go home because it completed all of its missions. That should really say something about how dangerous this job was. You had to be very brave to be a pilot in World War II. Now, this famous aircraft was actually restored very recently. I think it was either 2017 or 2018, but it is now on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. And there's even a movie made about it in 1990. Um, now, with all that said, the B-17 was an amazing aircraft and it truly deserves its status as an Air Force legend and as an aviation legend in total. One thing I should add here about the B-17 that 
and I didn't even touch on too much was it it the thing was the things reliable was at reliability was absolutely legendary like mostly because of the fact that instead of using pneumatic or or hydraulic controls instead it was controlled electrically meaning you would have to sever all the wires in the thing for it to make it go down instead of just getting rid of hydraulic fluid making it very reliable like to the point where where we actually talked about this not that long ago one there was b17 the all-american that had its tail straight sheared off almost and it still kept on flying like yeah that was a truly amazing story and if you want to hear more about that go listen to the uh first aviation stories episode that is where sergeant paul talks about the all-american b17 now, with all that said, I wish we had more time because we have barely scratched the surface with each one of these aircraft. There's a lot of information there, but unfortunately, our time is coming to an end for this week. So we'd like to thank you again for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.